This is the legend of the Bigfoot Human War of 1855. Thomas Tubby was an abnormally large gentleman, even for a Choctaw native. His father, Anali Tubby, stood two inches over eight feet in height and weighed almost 350 pounds. And his grandfather wasn't far behind at almost seven feet in height. So naturally, Thomas and his sons were extremely tall. This, along with being super strong and fierce, made the Tubby men some of the most renowned warriors of their time. Though his father and grandfather were out of the business, Hamas and his son were the point riders for a Choctaw Nation cavalry known as the Light Horsemen. The people of the Choctaw Nation often got a chuckle at the name of the cavalry, considering the men were so big and riding draft horses. The majority of the time, things were pretty quiet around the settlement for the Light Horsemen. But in 1855, something would take place that they'd never forget. It was the middle of the summer that year when a group of suspected bandits began preying on the local farmers and the natives. For over a month, these bandits have been taking large quantities of corn, squash, and beans from the farmers. But as of late, they began kidnapping children. The thievery had been taking place not only in their territory, but in Arkansas's native territory as well. The known count of children taken was now around 19, and the people had had enough. So Joshua LaFleur, the well-respected captain of the men, gathered the troops. LaFleur was chosen to be the captain because of his flawless character. He was impeccably honest and brave to a fault. This, along with his part French, part Choctaw Nation lineage, made him the perfect candidate. So early that morning, before daybreak, LaFleur took point of the cavalry and they headed out. He would lead the 30-man group to the state of Oklahoma, into a territory now known as the McCurtain County Wilderness Area. They started their mission leaving the tribal capital of Tuscaloma and had been riding since 3 o'clock in the morning when they reached the Clover River. They had been riding for almost 8 hours in the July hot summer sun and it was taking a toll on their horses. So they decided when they led them across the river, they would take a break. They let their horses eat while the men rested and ate as well. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, LaFleur ordered the men to remount their horses so they could start on the last leg of their journey. After a few more hours of riding, it was now around 4.30 in the afternoon and the men approached the area that the bandits were alleged to inhabit. They were trotting along slowly when suddenly LaFleur raised his fist, signaling the men to come to a halt. As they stopped, they watched LaFleur anxiously as he stood up in his stirrups and pulled a ship's eyepiece out of his pocket, peering forward. After peering into the wilderness for a few moments, LaFleur promptly turned to his men and gave the full armed command, CHARGE! The distance between the suspected bandits and the cavalry was about 500 yards. LaFleur and the Tubby men were at the front of the pack. The rest of the cavalry was right on their heels. Their horses were covering ground quickly. When they hit a large group of pines that outlined the clearing, the alleged bandits were in. But shortly after entering the pines, it was as if they were attacked by an invisible enemy. All but the Tubby men and LaFleur's mounts reared up and quickly became uncontrollable, throwing their men to the ground as they hit a wall of stench. It was the smell of death rotting corpses that had been baking in the sun for weeks. With their horses disciplined enough to stay the course, LaFleur and the Tubbies entered the clearing and saw the source of the smell. It was a massive mound of dirt and all the half-eaten bodies of the missing natives. Up to this point, there wasn't much the Tubby men and LaFleur hadn't witnessed in the perils of war. But nothing had prepared them for what they witnessed as they entered that clearing. At this point, the majority of the bandits had already fled, but three still remained. As they sized up the beasts that stayed behind, they quickly realized these were not men. They stood 10 to 12 feet tall, and their massive frames were covered in hair. 
The largest of the three hopped off the mound, made eye contact with the floor, and let out a fierce roar. He had recognized him as the leader, so this was his challenge. So LaFleur drew his saber, and with pistol in one hand, saber in the other, began to charge. He quickly covered the gap with his mount at a full-on sprint. And as he neared the group, the lead beast took two massive steps forward and struck his horse with his fist, killing it instantly. This sent LaFleur to the ground tumbling, but he promptly recovered and stood up, both weapons in hand. Without hesitation, he began pouring rounds out of his Patterson's Colt 45, unloading into the beast. The rounds pierced the beast's chest, blood pouring out, but it never even flinched as it made its way towards LaFleur. He emptied the cylinder into the beast, but it never even phased it, so he resorted to his sword and began slashing it, one strike after another. Still, the demon pushed forward, but as this was happening, LaFleur missed that a second beast was flanking him. Once the captain was in arm's reach, their leader knocked the saber out of his hand, while the second one grabbed him by the head, dismembering him. The tubby men had already began the charge as they watched their fearless leader's body go limp and hit the ground. After the death of their captain, the tubby men grew a fierce rage, and with their sharps buffalo rifles, they began firing on the beasts. Seven of them fired 50 caliber bullets at the heads of the beast, making their mark with two of them. After years of practice, the bullets made contact with their targets. The only problem was six shots hit the two culprits that killed their beloved captain. Only the youngest, Robert Tubby, who was just 18 years old, had the presence of mind to fire at the third beast, wounding it. In that day, a legend was born. All six foot 11, 300 pounds of the young man chased down the wounded beast. When he reached the monster, he dismounted his horse and jumped on its back, pulling out his knife. By the time his father and brothers had gotten to him, he had already decapitated it, holding its head up and letting out a fierce warrior cry. The primal scream even made the tubby mounts panic. The light horsemen gathered their steeds and gazed upon the absolute carnage that surrounded them. The partially consumed bodies of the 19 victims lay upon the mound. The stench of the decaying bodies was horrid, but still wasn't as bad as the urine and feces left behind by the monsters. That smell was stronger than even the strongest of stomachs could endure. And as the rest of the troop finally got to the clearing, they were retching and gagging at the sights. Once they were done dry heaving, the troops gathered the bodies and buried the 19 victims. After, they buried their beloved captain, Joshua LaFleur. Upon burying him out of respect, they gave him a 21-gun salute. Once done with that, they gathered a bunch of brush and logs, and then placed the beast upon it and lit it on fire. As they rode back to the settlement, each man struggled with visions and emotions they never even imagined. And that day would forever go down in history as the Bigfoot-Human War of 1855. Many people might find it hard to believe that Bigfoot is capable of this as generally he's a pretty docile creature. But there's actually been a number of cases where Bigfoots have gone feral. And not only that, there's actually considered a certain type of Bigfoot that is generally and inherently evil. These beasts are known as the red-eyed Bigfoot and they've been known to attack and take children. 
So for example, a case back in the 90s in the Appalachian Mountains, there was a family of four that had gone missing. And on top of all that, in the area, there had just been numerous attacks and people found mauled and eaten and they didn't really know the culprit at the time until they talked to the locals in a small town in the west side of North Carolina. They referred to these beasts as demons. They hated them with a passion because they had been harassed by them, most of the people who lived there their entire lives. As a result of the family of four that had gone missing, a mother, a father, and their two young children, they called in the Navy SEALs. And in the briefing room, the Navy SEALs literally laughed out loud when they told them what they would be encountering and attempting to neutralize. And let me say, I imagine the room got really quiet when their general who was briefing them told them, no, this is real and it's serious. So rather than use their standard issue rifle, they issued them 7.62s, which is the equivalent of a AK-47 or a 308. But before I tell you the entire story, just go ahead and stay tuned because I'm playing it right now. Let me know in the comments if you all enjoyed this story and if you enjoy the story that follows. I just always find these accounts really fascinating and interesting and they're definitely worth telling. So let me know what y'all think. Stay tuned for more cringe content provided by me. I am out. In the early 1990s, a team of Navy SEALs was called to Western North Carolina. Their mission was to neutralize a creature behind a family of four gone missing in the Appalachian Mountains. The following is a first-hand account of one of the team members. After being sanctioned by an alphabet government agency, they were to fly out the next morning. When they were first briefed on the target, they would literally laugh out loud. They all thought this has got to be a joke, but they would soon find out it was the furthest thing from it. After being shown multiple pictures of victims who were attacked, this SEAL team member would look over at his closest friend and fellow teammate. He was of Native American descent and he looked pale white. He sent chills down his spine as he mumbled, this isn't good at all. They would arrive the next day via chopper. As they landed, they seen the local sheriff waiting to welcome them. I haven't been this happy to see the cavalry since Korea, he would say. He would take them through town showing the damage done by what he called the hairy demons from trash buildings to disappearing families. After getting as much intel as they could from the sheriff, he would show them an old deer path. Follow this, you'll find them, he explained, and they set out on their mission. As they were making their way up the side of the Appalachian Mountains, their Native American team member would tell them a story. When I was young, my grandfather used to tell me all about them. How as a young man, he and his brothers would go on hunts. He would call the beasts wild men. They would harass our villages and take our children. Now I understand why he would never let me out at night, he explained. It was around 1400 hours when they would find their first track. Then they began seeing sign everywhere. They soon figured out that there were seven of them total and they began tracking them diligently. It was about 1930 hours and dark had just began to fall. That's when the point man would stop dead in his tracks and speak into his headset. You could hear the adrenaline in his voice. Sir, I see one, and it's huge. If you have the shot, take it, said the lieutenant. As he squeezed the trigger, the shot pierced the night silence. The 7.62 millimeter round hit the beast square in the chest. It let out a fierce roar and acted as if it was nothing but a mosquito. Suddenly, all seven of them began attacking at once. The beast moved throughout the forest with amazing agility. They were so quick you could barely see them, making them extremely hard to hit. 
Then out of nowhere, one of their teammates lets out a deathly scream. They look back as he's being pulled up into a tree. As they were fighting, one of the lieutenant's superiors would radio in, asking him to catch one alive. Not a effing chance, the lieutenant would reply. They would battle the beast for a couple days, killing the last one on the third night. Soon after, they would find the bodies of the missing family and their teammate, or what was left of them, as the beast had been eating them. Next day, they were told to stay quiet. They'd say their teammate died during training. Over 20 have died from training in the area since. I hope you all enjoyed that story. I discovered it probably four or five months ago. Whether it's true or not, up to you. I will say that a gentleman commented on one of my sources who lived nearby. He went to look at the battlefield and found 17 graves. Stay tuned for more cringe content like this provided by me. And make sure you all check out my YouTube with almost 210,000 subscribers and my Facebook page with almost 200,000 follows. I compile my parts to each story into one video on those pages. This is video, y'all. Don't give me too much crap about the way I say Appalachian. I had been sharing stories about it at the time and a lot of people were criticizing it. And then I finally did it, said it that way and then they criticized me that way too, so it just ended up. But the way I say it is normal, Appalachian. But I guess the people that actually are native to the Appalachian Mountains pronounce it the way I pronounced it. Just a heads up, so. All right, just had to share that little info right there. So.